So today um, talk about the uh, requirements for um, this movement saying into what I've called the vertical or the immaterial domain and that this uh, goes to some very uh, refined, sublime places which offer a lot of space, a lot of ease and uh, uh, a good clear view of things. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, fresh mountain out of this kind of steamy city where it's all kind of noisy and jangly. Yeah. So this is the uh, theme of restraint, renunciation, um, withdrawal. These these terms are often used, and the uh, requirement to what 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 makes that possible, because this is not uh, asceticism. This is uh, marked with pleasure which is the, one of the key features of the Buddha's teaching and sometimes we criticized at that time we had the mortification um, team who were into a, who could mortify the most uh, the best <laughs> and they're still out there doing it this has been a, a common trait not just in, in, in Buddhist but in all spiritual um, lineages a lot of this, the paradigm of how do you deal with sense desire, how do you deal with the body, how do you deal with uh, being in a world where the body is geared for food and procreation and sensuality and so forth, how do you deal with that? So, you know, often the thing is just to shove it down or to castigate, chastise the flesh, get the knotted ropes out or whatever is your took the take on it. <laughs> so the Buddha is saying, well no, this is this is a this is ignoble and painful and wrong view. <laughs> so so the ascetic practice is inclined towards hell because one is acting in a harsh or violent way to to one's body and or, you know, bringing around a negative and punitive um, tendencies. So this is, you know, one thing to have a, as a mark, you know, because often that is what people would, you know, assume if you're not for something, you must somehow, you know, uh, and it's something kind of built into nature, you know, uh, and we have sense organs, they, they like to hold on to what's pleasing. And uh, so you're going to try and cut it off. Mm. Now, so, but the Buddha is saying, well, no, not really. Yeah. There's a certain cutting off or restraining in order to attune to something subtler, perhaps more profitable, more sustainable, and more, uh, you know, intimate. If you contemplate the the, set, the way the sense organs, sense bases are described or or, portray, or presented 
in in the teaching it starts off with it goes the eye the ear the nose the tongue body mind and remember the mind meaning that which um, you know adheres to or searches for thought uh, also we see the mind which which inclines towards emotion so mind heart but this kind of um, that which is tri- really triggered by um, activity on the sense plane in that way uh, and the mind is the way out now those those sense bases you can see they they're increasing or tend to uh, they're increasing in the intimacy so the visual sense is not very intimate at all because everything you see is definitely out there and the visual sense has no feeling with it it doesn't feel anything you know you the interpretation of the visual sense the mental interpretation experiences feeling but the visual sense just sees things it's out there and you can shut your eyes and look away from it and what you see doesn't necessarily see you so the visual sense is kind of quite distanced uh, and you, you, you experience yourself as it's in front of me yeah. so I, you know, I could turn away from it auditory sense a little more close because visual sense always brings in distance mm. auditory sense distance is not so clear is that a helicopter or a fly in my ear that buzzing sound or is it tinnitus? <laughs> what is it? I don't know. Or is it some mystic sound? <laughs> is this realization, the mystic sound of silence, the crystal spheres, or is it just got a, a tinnitus? So you can't quite tell. Distance is not very good. So it's, it's less um, safe in that respect. And also with hearing, everything you hear is around you could be behind you it could be close to you so it's a little more volatile Uh, and the visual sense is the predator generally a good animal very good and the the prey have got good hearing (laughs) you know the deer's ear and the rabbit's ears they, you know, they've got eyes, but they're really chewing through the ears. I'm going to make sure this animal's predator's hiding behind me. You know, I want to be able to hear it. And we, we're both predators and prey. Mm, yeah. So, and then the hearing sense is a little more intimate and associated with uh, fear. Uh, yeah. Visual sense of shock, maybe or delight, sudden hit, auditory sense more associated with fear, or of course, um, the absence of it. Listening to unimpeded silence, comforting sounds that ease the domain I'm living in. I'm in it, therefore it's gonna, you know, it's gonna get around me. And then when you come to the olfactory sense which we're not particularly strong on now the sense is going to happen it's going to get into you you know she really got up my nose do you have that expression (laughs) 
I, I don't think she did, but yeah, it means. <laughs> yeah, yeah something that's really bonk. But for us, because our, our olfactory sense is rather limited compared with a dog, um, who are extremely um, tuned and, and rich olfactory, it's generally fairly momentary. You're not, not very strong. And it's to do with, you know, so you get you, ugh. You know, you recoil, you smell something bad, you, 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 know, you puck your nose, ugh, you pull away from it because it's getting into you, right? And you want to dispel it. Or something fragrant, you kind of incline towards it, you want to take it in. So this is more intimate. Taste, of course, even more, because it's not going to, just going to flash through, it's going to go right into you, you know, down your throat. So you notice when you drink your drink or eat your food that you first of all you'll be aware of your hand and your arm moving and then because of visual food and then the lips become very large in your awareness because they they got to navigate you can't see when it's here so the lips have to kind of pucker up <laughs> to get you know to for the hand to orient towards the mouth and of course this is our very primary thing because as babies, we suckled, so the lips very uh, acute to take in nourishment. So this is obviously a big, big deal for for us creatures to eat and to be nourished. We get it in, and this can be ex- extremely pleasant. You know, oral gratification is a fairly strong um, thing for people. You know? So we generally eat and drink not purely for quenching hunger because it's something to pop in your mouth is a general feeling well, a little nice, you know <laughs> have a candy or something or you know, what for? something sweet going inside me bodily sense of course extremely uh, um, intimate because whatever you touch touches you so there's no separation, unlike the visual, it's very, and it, the, the skin can tremble on, on tactile contact, you know, it, because it, this is really, could be extremely dangerous. So it's got hold of you, so that all kinds of signals can happen at physical contact. Uh, because one could be an object that's being grabbed. And so those synapses, those triggers, those attitudes can rise up at sense contact. And of course, the opposite, this could be something warm, lovely, and uh, conducive to sexual behavior. So it's also that kind of triggering can occur. So very powerful triggering, nurturing, being cuddled, being held. Um, You know, a little baby needs to be held to feel welcome, you know, means to be held pretty much constantly, I would guess. It's been a while since I was one. But um, that seems to be the general you know, received wisdom of the ages, is, is carry the cre- little one, preferably carry it right close to your chest so you can hear the heartbeat and feel the warmth of the body. That's a constant reassurance, you know, that you are safe and comfortable and welcomed. Hmm? Not just something <laughs> carrying the weight but actually you know beyond what's necessary for just physical support the sense of actual 
you know, skin to skin, safe warmth, um, comforted experience. And then of course that sexual contact, um, probably, you know, secondary to that. So because sexual contact is generally, you know, it's going to be comparatively brief, you know, whereas you can hold a baby all day long, you don't have sexual contact all day long. So it's brief, it's more kind of volatile experience. So, and that, that can be, have qualities of agreeable, even, um, you know, risky, threatening, threatening, um, penet- being penetrated, penetrating and other kinds of stuff can happening around there that could be, you know, has to be handled very carefully because this could be alarming, frightening, um, you know, so this is one reason. So around sexuality, it's it's really um, so necessary to have some wisdom and realize, you know, everyone, you know, who who pra- who experiences is in sexual uh, relationship, then restraint is just basically a, a norm. You know, doesn't mean you know to just be able to check. And make sure this is appropriate and this is being received in the right way and the person you know the other person is not an object because being an object is not um, it's not respectful it's not intimate Being subject means you definitely have your own say, responsiveness, and your independence. Of course, you know the um, big picture for the um, the Buddha and the Buddhist Buddhist practitioners is that you know the celibacy would be take you to a, a more refined plane than than sensory strength. Basically because you are, in a way, reorienting your body signaling, your internal energies, and maintaining a kind of steady, a steady uh, mode, rather than the more up and down, kind of strongly felt experiences. And, and of course, it's, it's uh, comparatively simple, but it ain't easy. <laughs> It simplifies things in some respect, and uh, the. But then, of course, for that you have to, for that to be skillful and fruitful, there has to be enough or adequate of the warming, welcoming, uh, inner ease, safety, you know, so so that one does feel. you know, complete in a way internally, and this is a lot of this is really the skills of of um, the mind, because although the body is, you can say the body is something can enter me, or I can enter another, or be very much connected and bonded in this responsive way, the mind is even more intimate, because in that you're both in it, out it, under it, over it, it's everywhere. It's just permeates everything, you know. So it's the most intimate thing at all. Sometimes you are it, sometimes it's happening to you. 
it's uh, it's multi-dimensional so you have a huge dimensional range and the theme is if that dimensional range of the mind could be uh, cleared of uh, negative influences of you know bleak areas of fear areas of you know you name it hindrances that domain would be a very very far-reaching range of experience to to dwell in so this is the theme and so the the buddha is saying this is a a kind of pleasure that can be uh, realized through purifying the mind of hindrance and absorbing into the enjoyable qualities of that abiding so that's the that's the how the renunciation thing works um, for people or doesn't work but at any rate it's always the sense of um, having what's called the sine qua non is vigilance over the senses knowing what the senses uh, can bring to into play um, because uh, whatever uh, arises on the sensory domain is of the nature to pass and change and could look pleasant but actually taste awful <laughs> and so on could look nice and feel horrible uh, because the the uh, nature of of um, uh, of feeling is both bodily feeling and mental feeling. Mental feeling is generally a synthesis. The mind synthesizes particular attributes and aspects into an agreeable um, omelette, you know, into an agreeable collective experience synesthesia is the norm so we see something seeing by itself is just seeing we see something it reminds us of something uh, from that the memory and the sight gives rise to oh you know some synesthetic experience say of comfort or pleasure or warmth and this this is the way so then something seems to be feel good to look at because the mind synthesizes it and there's an embodied and it also brings up a certain bodily quality to that bodily flush of pleasure so you can you know you can see a painting and feel thrilled literally in your in your in your body because the mind can trigger bodily responses and this is the principle of meditation or a principle in meditation in samatha is you something is pretty much so what as breathing in and out which everybody's doing all the time and can synthesize uh, the mind can synthesize that into a quality of this is agreeable, this is constant, this is within you. So it has the same kind of penetrating effect, say, of, a, of an erotic experience, 
but actually it's of a kind of milder, sustainable, steadier level and it can suffuse the entire body and it's going to be long-term, long-lasting. You know, so the Buddha is saying, I can, I can sit in this for seven days and nights. You know, which, you know, he, so he's saying, well, you know, King Bimbisar of Magadha, you know, with all his sense pleasures, all his perfumes and spices and wives and musicians and everything, he couldn't sit for seven minutes in pleasure. <laughs> So this is, he said, this is a kind of finer quality, but of course the pleasantness of it is there to both reorient um, one's at, one's attitudes and, and intentions. You know, yeah, I want to be for that to provide a kind of place where the mind will settle because it feels it's being fed. The body settles because it is also being fed. It hasn't got this kind of cramped, tense, jangly sense to it. It's being fed with the palpable, um, pleasurable experience that runs through the system. And also because it's steady, there can be a greater sense of clarity. You're not getting another hit of something kind of jumping in and distracting your attention or lots of thoughts jumping around. So it's a clearer. So I'd say this is like, you know, coming up the mountain and your lovely clear space, sun is shining if you're warm. If you're safe, you can look around, you can see. Yeah. Um, so then this becomes the, the um, basis for deep insight. In fact. In fact, this is the simile, perhaps is where I got it from. In um, the 125th Sutta of the Majima, Dantabhumi, Grade of the Tamed, when Prince Jayasena goes to see the novice Achiravati, just the novice. So he's, you know, just very newly gone forth. And so he addresses the novice and says, I heard a bhikkhu can abide here, diligent, ardent, resolute, can achieve unification of mind. And uh, the... Um, Chiravati says, well, that's true. So, so the Jaya, Jayasena, Prince Jayasena says, well, teach me the Dhamma. And Chiravati says, yeah, I can't teach you the Dhamma. You know, anyway, if I tried, you wouldn't understand what I'm talking about. And it would just be a wearisome and troublesome. me. So, pretty straight. So, but anyway, <laughs> I waste my time. <laughs> Which is pretty, you know, in your face for a little novice to come out with, to a prince. But he comes up with it three times. So the deal is generally, if they ask you three times, you've got to say something. So he tries. And, uh, and after his half three tries, Prince Jayasena says, no, it's impossible. It can't happen that a bhikkhu who buys diligent, ardent, resolute can achieve unification of mind. So... So he did waste his time. <laughs> so then Achiravati goes to see the Buddha, and the Buddha says, look, how is it possible that Prince Jayasena, living in the midst of sense pleasures, enjoying sense pleasures, devoured by thoughts of sense pleasures, consumed by the fever of sense pleasures, bent on the sense of sense pleasures, could know, see, or realize that which must be known through renunciation, 
seen through renunciation, attained through renunciation, realized through renunciation. This is impossible. But suppose there were a high mountain not far from a village or town, you know, two friends would leave the village and so forth. One would remain at the foot, the other would climb to the top. So the one who remained at the foot of the mountain would say to the friend who stood on the top, well, friend, what do you see standing on top of the mountain? The other replied, I see lovely parks, lovely groves, lovely meadows and lovely ponds. And the first friend who's standing at the foot would say, it's impossible. <laughs> and say, why? Because the first friend would play because, because I was obstructed by the mountain. So to Agivisena, Prince Jayasena is obstructed, hindered, blocked and enveloped by a still greater mass than this mountain, the mass of ignorance. Mm. Yeah, so you know, the difference between a novice and a prince is, is a very huge difference you know, in their, their lifestyles. And so it's also to just bear in mind that renunciation is classically, you know, it's going to be the eight precepts, um, celibacy, and um, refraining from eating in the afternoon. So basically, a kind of quite quite a strong um, commitment. And yet, I would suggest that centrist rate and renunciation are are necessary, and for people who are uh, living in the world, so to speak, then you've got to look at what can be done on that level. You know, sense restraint. Um, and eminently necessary because you know, the great ism that is consuming humanity is not fascism or Marxism, but consumerism. <laughs> and consumerism is not just a consuming humans, it's consuming the entire planet. Um, based and always, uh, it becomes very difficult not to participate in some of that because of the, uh, you know, you've got to have, you want to work, you've got to have a car, and you've got to have this and you've got to have that. So, you know, where it becomes very important, I suggest one of the most significant things that one can do as a, as a lay person is, you know, form collectives. So the sharing resources. We don't need, there's 20 of us, we don't need 20 cars. Maybe we just need eight. You know, we can share rides and things like this. Um, and so the more that one can cultivate dana, in the sharing sense, sealer in, I trust him with my car, you know, he can borrow my car because he's not going to rip it off, uh, and he'll look after it, he'll be responsible for it, and if he damages it, he'll fix it, you know, sense of sealer and friendship, then we can pull resources out, we don't have to buy so much, don't have to consume so much, things can go down, and that'll give me greater freedom from this, this um, grabbing uh, so it's not even now that we necessarily reach out. The world reaches in, aiming for your back pocket. <laughs> or wherever it is. You know. So even when it's particularly you know, hungry for sense 
desires as it is. So in the Buddhist classical India, you know, you've got a rather different scenario. Now it's whether you want it or not, we're coming for you. And that's that's the that's the way it's turned. You know, and there's a certain karmic, you know, long term socio cultural karmic momentum that's brought that around. Fascination with uh, stuff. So it goes beyond, so we look at one thing to contemplate is differentiating between the immediate uh, hit that ha- when something happens, you see something attractive in a, in a store or somebody's wearing something you see with your eye and you get that, oh wow, it's supposed to do that. They, they worked on it to make it do that. <laughs> uh, so one thing that one generally cultivates is to keep, be around with guarding this so you don't need to look at everything that's around. The sense of just shielding like you're wearing a some blinders, you know, something you can turn down, the visor, and just walk on the show. I don't need to look in the stores. I need to look where I'm going. Um, I don't, you know, and still it's difficult because, you know, they slam the billboards in your face and, you know, if you've got your mobile phone, then up comes the, <laughs> the advertisement, the promotion. It's really, you really see it. You're, you're a prey. Uh, you're a prey. Uh, so being able to require not an ex- requirement to learn how to moderate, switch off, deflect, deliberately um, rebuff the predators of the consumer world. No. So if I totally, you know, even though I can't buy anything really, so it's kind of easy in a way, but it's just extremely, you know uncomfortable to, to uh, you go to an airport you've got to walk through this shopping mall to get to the gate you can feel these tentacles coming out you know. <laughs> I, don't, I don't want any whiskey I don't want a wristwatch I don't want perfume I mean what am I perfume for I don't, you know <laughs> so you, but still they've got this kind of glow warm you know thing to, to hit some neural circuits somewhere, they seem, they, they, they emanate desirability. Uh, and just go, don't like this. Kind of grab, 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 grab. I find it very inappropriate, you know. It's been sort of like, you know, violation of my space. So, you know, just keep the eyes focused and focus on the body. Focus on walking, body moving. So, you know, cultivating like that. Because even if you don't buy anything, which you're probably not going to do for nine out of ten times, still just having the mind seized constantly by sense data, seized, seized, seized without you granting permission, (laughs) is a kind of violation in my mind, uh, inappropriate, disrespectful. So you've got to, no, no, no. It's not a moral injuncture, 
you know, the, the thing itself is wrong, but the being seized by something is wrong, and something designed to do it. So if you're looking for a suit or clothes or something, sure, you go to a tailor's, you go to a... But you don't have anything thrust in front of your face everywhere you walk. <laughs> yeah. So you, using restraint over the sense faculties. The other um, um, practice or reference that's made, quite an interesting one, and how Sai is a guardian of the sense doors. Here a monk was here, of course, you know, monastic training. You know, you've got a lot of training, years of training, to, to, because this is your job in a way, is to be someone who can do the navigation through this and then teach it to others. So you've got to do the field work to be a, a proper navigator. This is the second discourse of the long sayings and the 65th paragraph. It's called The Advantages of the um, Reclusive Life. Monk, on seeing a visible object with the eye, does not grasp its major signs or secondary characteristics. Does not grasp its major signs or secondary characteristics. Because greed and sorrow, evil, unskilled states would overwhelm him if he dwelt, leaving the eye faculty unguarded. And through, so this is repeated for all the senses. And the result of this experience is with himself the blameless bliss that comes from maintaining this Aryan guarding of the sense faculties. Major signs, secondary characteristics. Major signs, secondary characteristics. Major signs, what a thing presents itself as. Say, this is an apple, this is a, a vehicle, this is a car, this is a, a, whatever it is, an item of clothing. Secondary characteristic, this is, here we get the meanings, you know. This is... Uh, Comfort. This is uh, exciting. This is beauty. This is uh, playful. This is necessary. This is so sexy. This is so smooth. This is so you know. These kind of infiltrated uh, qualities that, that suffuse the mind. Major signs, secondary characteristics. Also sometimes ref seen as either looking at a detail, if it, you see details that attract, or, you, or you're attracted by the whole thing. Yeah. So... It's a particular, so you see a, see a car, for example, you generally don't get interested in the exhaust pipe, the exhaust manifold. You like the kind of smooth coloring or the, the contours. You see the whole form is, is, is quite delightful. You know, it's generally streamlined, nice, sleek form that gives connotations of power. Yeah. Generally, they look powerful, like this, you know, big blunt nose or high riding, 
uh, thing. The color, um, you know, uh, has a richness to the color. It's only a rich color, rich color, gloss, shine, or a satin finish. This exudes wealth, power, and it's got it in a sleek shape. And when I'm in that, you know, and the funny thing is, you sit inside the thing, you can't, you can't see it from the outside. But you imagine, when you look at it from the outside, there's this something you you begin to buy and own. You take on its characteristics. <laughs> So you become rich color, <laughs> powerful, sleek. And this is not, not a rational process. This is the uh, erotic principle. <laughs> uh, so you can have a motorbike, for example. Now, clearly, you know, a sparking park, they're greasy. They're greasy, smelly um, pieces of metal. <laughs> Noisy. <laughs> Noisy, greasy. <laughs> hot, can burn yourself on a piece of metal. You don't say that to a biker. <laughs> this is my hog, you know. <laughs> this is my key to the highway. This is my freedom. This is my power, my strength, my independence. I get on that thing and vroom, we're away, you know. And I'm on my own, you know. And I can cut through the traffic. And you've got to... It's that. And so because that's... I am that. <laughs> When I ride that thing, I am that. Hmm? So you can have a deep erotic relationship with a motorbike, which cannot possibly reciprocate in any meaningful <laughs> except it's got a kind of throaty roar, if you like that. <laughs> and you can wing it and whiz along in it. But otherwise, it is just really a greasy piece of metal with... Uh, rough surfaces that will cause you damage uh, you know if it falls on you or you kill somebody with it these are death dealing machines but we don't see it that way so there's a, an immense piece of um, um, consumer uh, in, uh, marketing and they're always refining it refining it, changing it you know with a sense of the owner, as your body becomes schematized around it, so it becomes part of your body. And in fact, in riding motorbike, you've got to, it's got to become part of your body in order to ride it skillfully, particularly if you're doing speed riding. You cannot think about what you're doing. Your body has to know to be one with that bike, and you know how to balance and hold your body, because your body and the bike become one thing. Yeah. So, because you can't, if you're going at speed, you cannot think. You've got to f immediately feel it in your reflexes. You've got to feel what the road is doing. Feel the traction of the tires. Listen to the sounds. Every sense organ has to be in that, just like it's your body. Yeah. Um, so, this thing, that's what, you, so the, when you're off the bike, you know, what do you do? Dream about it. Look at bike magazines. Uh, talk to other bikers. I mean, this is exaggerating, but, you know, that's how something kind of takes over, infiltrates. 
So there's there's the the danger because it will not look after you when you're sick. Yeah. It will not you know come to your aid. It will not uh, instruct you in the five precepts <laughs> and so forth. But it sure is you feel good on it if you're really attuned to it. So it's uh, you know it said sometimes things that feel good are not so good. This is a difficult thing to learn. What feels good doesn't always do me good. It takes, I don't know, about 25 years you start to get a bit of a hint of that. (laughs) It seems so unfair. But then one, the requirement to feel good uh, as, uh, as one matures in, in life is to, is to transfer that so that same principle can then apply to breathing it out, uh, bonding to that, uh, bonding to the uh, qualities of virtue, generosity, um, self-confidence, restraint. So actually, your body can form around those just as it can form around a motorbike. You can embody that just as you can embody a piece of metal, which sounds, it sounds easier, doesn't it? Can you embody a piece of metal? You can, to a certain degree. But now you're embodying something that's even more, well, a lot more valuable and intimate and does no harm, cannot cannot kill, doesn't cost anything, cannot send toxic fumes into the environment. Mm. And it's got that sense of bonding. And this requires deep commitment, constant practice, reorientation of the somatic domain, reorientation of one's sense basis, so you learn how to restrain, you know a sign is a sign. You know, you know particular features that seemingly attract you. You kind of put soft focus on that and look at a less attractive um, aspect uh, of of an item that maybe carry attractive aspects to it. Or you can go soft focus altogether. Certainly, living in a celibate life, then you know your, your sense of how you deal with uh, contact with with women becomes uh, something that has to be skillful and and careful. Yeah. So either being attracted to particular features or the general shape or the demeanour, and then how to acknowledge, notice that, and how to restrain one's senses to and I would say also amplify. The mental content of respect, uh, goodwill, uh, carefulness, appropriateness. Um, so eventually, the the you know, and also, it, um, so in a way, the the kind of speaking personally, you know, the the the, the womanliness begins to become very uh, 
It's sort of there, but it's not really the dominant feature. It's the person or the human or the mental domain that you really tune into. <clears throat> and it almost, I suggest it always requires one t- tunes into that to have another basis to, to, um, to, to connect to. It's primarily most sexual desire is, is of a fantasy nature. So if you restrain the mind from that, then you've dealt with a huge amount of uh, stuff. But fantasy will generally mean this is warm, this is comfortable, this is agreeable, this will fill me, this will satisfy me. And of course, let's face it, you know. (laughs) So naturally, there can be warm and, and beautiful moments, but essentially, you know, the favor that we can serve each other is to encourage each other to find our own constant uh, warmth and satisfaction, then we, we both can donate and receive that. We're not kind of searching to pull it out of somebody else or searching for somebody to be an object. So, major signs, secondary characteristics, uh, being aware of where one tri- gets triggered by a detail or gets triggered by the whole form, you know, so if you look at the example of the car, it might be the whole form you get powered by. But you don't particularly get interested in the, the windshield wipers. So you look at the windshield wipers. So what? Or you look at the, look at the um, exhaust manifold. Or you reflect upon it. This is a piece of metal. costs, you know, $40,000. And it's going to break down and cost me constant money, headaches, service bills, repair bills, you see the um, danger and, and the limitations and you, you cut through the charisma. <laughs> so the mind has to engage and work with these things. When you get this kind of glow experience, oh wow, danger, danger, danger. <laughs> when you get one of those, and the charisma hits, and you get a glow experience, you get the alarm bell ringing because this is where we are not in command, and beings are constantly seduced by that experience uh, in many ways. And there you go, kind of, wow, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the mind is even more, uh, far greater range than the other sense faculties, and we can cultivate wisdom, which is the thing that really is our strong and, and uh, refuge and, and tool. Now the aim of why I've written down the synopsis of the main themes of the Sigalaka Sutta on the 33rd discourse of the long discourses because for myself, for a bhikkhu, you have a very uh, detailed training experience called vinaya, much of which you'd hardly consider to be about morality, you know, in its, in its obvious sense, much as it's about protocols, um, where you go, uh, where you don't go, uh, what you give attention to, how you give half attention, how you withdraw attention, uh, 
how you pay respect, who you connect to. You know, so you're constantly building up skillful bonds that you, you begin to feel yourself almost embodied in, rather like the example I'm have, say, of the, the motorbike or something like that. There's certain things you begin to entrain, get entrained into. Um, you know, respect, um, restraint, um, moderation around food, these become things you, you cultivate and they, so they become second nature and the, then then that has the re- sense restraint has then become established as a strength rather than something you've got to constantly pull to have happen it becomes a natural abiding and sense restraint the senses are just not going out to the signals so this comes really helpful for meditation because the mind is centered and this is where this leads to what's called unification of mind, samadhi, jhana, through the, the uh, results of that process of sense restraint. The mind is not interested, it is, it's not going out, it's not seeking to go out, even if things knock on the door, it tends to just not go out. Therefore, it's unified. And this, of course, you know, is the advantage of of the Samana training. And it builds up an alternative mini society of of people, both monastic and lay people, because you can't have a Samana without lay people. So, otherwise, it doesn't, can't, can't happen. So it builds up a mini society that that encourages respect, relationship, um, generosity, virtue, sharing. So we feel nicely, you know, in in what in a cooperative social form, which is part of what we're about. We're not just completely internal. We do have an external. How to make the external work for you, rather than you constantly work for it. Um, this is the key. And so here, the Buddha is giving advice to um, Sigala, uh, some kind of merchant or something, on a similar veneer for for lay people. And the details, in some respects, in social respects, are of 5th century BC India. but I would suggest that many of the themes, if they can be translated or into contemporary circumstances, are worthy of reflection, worthy of consideration. So the first series are clearly the um, precepts, actually, and the mental biases. Bias due to desire, aversion, delusion, fear. Now this is what comes up, I would suggest, in your social domain. You know, so one is tempted towards craving through, through consumer presentations, tempted towards aversion through political doctrines, <laughs> averse to others, seeing enemies where there are none, uh, bias to delusion, and the general fantasy realm of uh, um, 
you get a good job, you will be happy, and so on. And the various kinds of delusionary myths that are presented of the happy way of life that nobody has, but looks like it on the, in, the, in the movies, due to fear. Fear of threat, fear of scorn, fear of being rejected. Fear of getting fired. Yeah. Fear of looking like an idiot. Fear of not fitting in. Social pressure. What a bore you are. What a drag you are because you're not doing this. How, what a weirdo you are. Yeah. So fear through either one's be- because one's behaviour you know, isn't the same or one's appearance isn't the same. or So a lot of these biases that can occur and so we're encouraging our practice of commitment, refuge, to give us a firm foundation to re- re- rebut those biases. And I think with all of these, reasonably speaking, you've got to have other people who are doing the same to give you some support in it. Uh, and it's worth travelling ten yojanas with a shoulder bag <laughs> to to see one. <laughs> if she's not living next door to you then uh, it's worth travelling uh, to see. Because we are definitely in danger. Uh, the paths to ruin, addictions, uh, roaming the streets at unseemly hours. Well, <laughs> I think all hours are now seemly, but you know things have moved on. But, uh, general carousing out, uh, um, late night carousing, uh, so gambling, bad friends, lazing around. <coughs> Paths to ruin. Then the importance to gather the resources. Avoiding false friends, swindlers, great talkers means people who blab, blab, but don't come up with anything. <laughs> Flatterers, those who urge one to indulge in the paths of ruin. Cultivating true friends, those who support, those who are loyal, both happy and unhappy times. Friends who point out what is beneficial. Yeah, so. Friendship and cultivation of friendship. One of us hospitality and generosity in various ways. One offers kindly words, comfort, assurance, sage, sagely advice, assistance and support. From friends. And the seven qualities of the good friend. Does what's hard to do for your sake. They walk the extra mile. They uh, do what's hard to do for your welfare. That's a good friend. Gives what's hard to give. They give their time, they give their attention, they give their care. Um, you know, not just what's casual, like, oh, that's easy, but give what requires a little bit more. This is like you know the mother who carries the baby round on her chest for months on end. 
endures for their friend's sake, bears with things uh, through the trials and tribulations. And particularly, of course, if one is sick. And they've got to bear with you moaning, groaning, dribbling, drooling, bleeding, oozing and stuff. Whatever happens to sick bodies. <laughs> Um, reveals their own confidences, they let you into their heart, something that perhaps is not publicly known or just presented. You get a feeling of, oh, I am, I am seen as worthy of respect, I'm seen, I'm experienced as someone who is trusted. Uh, you know, that's beautiful. Someone sees you in that way. And similarly, you do the same thing. If they reveal their heart to you, you, you treasure that, you appreciate they're giving you something very special and you don't fling it around, you keep it confidential because this, this is intimate so you know to break a confidence is a form of, is a violation you know, so this is something we because uh, you know, gossip is one of the harmful bases of speech where you take something perhaps of an intimate nature and you spread it around. Which is and if you've been gossiped about, it is, you know, very, very wounding. You know, behind your back, who's my who's really my friend? What he said to my face wasn't what he did behind my back. Then this is uh, deeply um, it's a violation, you know, betrayal. So if you, you can't keep a confidence, don't ask for one. <laughs> if you do keep a confidence, then you, you have to be the capacity to keep vigilance over speech. So this is where the precepts, speech precept becomes very important. We can do so much damage with speech, so much harshness, criticism with speech. Doesn't walk out of one when they're having a difficulty, you know. Oh God, you know. But in fact, does the opposite. Bears with it, and when they completely lose it, down and out, financially ruined, uh, got into drug addiction, you know, something like that, you still don't give up on them. Because if you have that, then you are perhaps the last resort when a person's lost themselves in some behavior, they've created a crime, they've lost control, they, they've become addicted to something, you are the last resort. And you should always remember that. However unpleasant they may seem, you want to hang in there and see whatever you can do, because without you, they're lost. If they've lost themselves, that's the last, the last thing you want to do is give up on them. That's, that's, you know, like somebody's out in the ocean, they've got one rope, <laughs> and you're holding on the other end of the rope, you don't say, I'm getting tired. <laughs> <laughs> Look after yourself, you hold on to the rope and you try and pull them in. At least give them some sense of sharing, you know. If you can't necessarily fix it, change it, you at least hang in there. And, uh, 
These are requirements, of course, of the Brahma-vihara. And with uh, the bottom line of it, it has to be equanimity. Which is not indifference. It means, you know, okay, you know, you're in a mess. Um, you lost it. That's not. I agree. That's not good. That's not skillful. It's not helpful. I'm still here, and uh, this can pass. These cultivations in friendship are extremely important because the only way that we can fully be resourced to combat the pull of the senses and the various afflictive fears and you know, things that, that hinder the mind is through deeply up, you know, fully upgrading the resources, spiritual resources. And this is a very big one, resource of goodwill. You know, we are fundamentally heart creatures, perhaps more, more than we understand. We will grieve for our lost ones uh, for years. Uh, we will sacrifice for our dear ones. Uh, that, you know. And uh, we will feel moved by an earthquake in some country thousand miles away. And we'll want to help out. We have a vast range of empathy. We will feel empathy for a, an animal, for a, a creature that's in pain. Mm. You know. And part of the uh, consequence of that is that uh, the emotion will be very difficult to manage because we can always be too Im so empathic, we get flooded with what do you do about the refugees in Syria? Oh, you know, the, the weight of human suffering can be overwhelming. This is where you need this this embodiment to maintain ground. I'm aware of that. I know that I'm moved by that. Still, I, I have this ground here so that that charge, emotional charge, can be earthed. Without that, people, what people do, they shut off. And you can see enormous amounts of that happening, um, particularly where you're in, in very public domains, public servants, by and large, shut off most of the time because they can't deal with a thousand beings. They can't empathically bond to a thousand beings a day. So they just shut it all off, including even hospitals, you know, medical. Just it's a shielding effect. You can't, you know, somebody comes in emergency and they die on the operating table and you've got somebody else coming in 15 minutes later. Now in real terms, if a person died, you'd have a day or two to get over it. But if somebody else coming in 15 minutes, so you just, okay. You know? Uh, and I just, just the, uh, I don't know. 
you know, damage or the what 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 the effect of that? You know, because you 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 want to be able to moderate, but still, if we don't stay in touch with our empathic nature, then we're also in deep trouble because we lose empathy with ourselves. We lose empathy. We become somatically restricted, tense, tight, uh, numb, and machine-like. And that also, you see the results of that in soldiers who cannot clearly empathize. So what do you do to these men, women, who go out and fight for your country, which is often isn't for your country? <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> it's just some piece of geopolitical stuff. And go out and shoot violent weapons, bomb, are in firefights with bombs and salvo and people screaming and flames and stuff like that. Shut, 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 shut. And then what do they come home like? How come they, so many of them, uh, either become extremely dysfunctional or, or even addictive or kill themselves. That's the extreme example of the results of cutting off. So, anyway. Just the brutality of you, it's just so awful. Yeah. See, we're capable of so much better than that. So, so the, uh, just take a moment. Quality of the good friend is allows you to return to empathy, yeah, because uh, so often life does seem to present us with these. You're in realms where people are cut off, and it's ex extremely weird when you're treated by somebody who's cut off. It's it's quite frightening. You realise there's no nobody there, and you know you're in a system. This is the rule. Stand over there. What's your name? And there's no, hey, hello, what's happening? You know, <laughs> what's going on? No, no, just stand over there. We'll get back to you. Behind the line. <laughs> Put your arms out. <laughs> that sounds serious. Anytime I go to the airports, you know, <laughs> pat down. You know, it's not too bad in that situation. Thank for what I'm dealing with. But still, you know, you get that sense of, yeah. You know what could happen if you don't fit. Yeah. Not that anything particularly physical, just the sense of you realize you're now out of any empathic um, bond, any empathic connection. A good friend helps to bring you back into that when you've been.
been in that or had to do that or been part of that. And so the good friend, you don't have to be happy. <laughs> but you, can be, you know, you can, you can be miserable because <laughs> it doesn't matter. It's not about being happy, clear, confident, bright to be a friend. It's just to be real. <laughs> and somebody who will, you know, is actually, I like the reality of, you know, you, you're, you're feeling annoyed, angry, depressed, that's okay. Because at least there's a connection. There's, there's reality and I'm, I'm sensing it and, and I can also participate in, in um, helping that to travel and unfold and move on. This is enormously necessary in our lives, I would suggest. So it's but establishing for that we you know you, you establish particular commitments, relationships, connections, protocols, you know, to, for mutual respect. And in this one friend, the so the various kinds of human um, context here, human protocols here, the parent-child, we could say the care, primary caregiver to the one who is dependent on them. So in this, those motifs are played out in various ways and depend doesn't necessarily mean one is lesser, though certainly parent-child you could say that, but particularly when it becomes partner, husband, wife in this context, the mutuality of dependence. We're in a dependent relationship, people contribute. And there's certain protocols like you have say over this, um, I offer this to you, um, I have say over that, you allow me this, you know, and that that negotiation to establish uh, proper proper protocol. And again, this is something to be considered because quite a piece of the cultural mythology is let's be casual and informal. That's best, casual and informal. Not, <laughs> not good. <laughs> because that means like no negotiation, no protocols, no restraint. <laughs> it's just whatever is happening for me happens to you. you know? uh, that, that's that's not appropriate because you you know the respect of your another subjectivity. Um, so it's not it doesn't have to be certainly not rigid, but there's a craft, a skill, an etiquette, the etiquette of the dance. You know, it's not just crashing in and blundering. As an etiquette of how do you, how do you move together, yeah. so the negotiation of, of contact, negotiation of relationship, negotiation of relative degrees of responsibility, in which you wrap, you agreeably acquiesce. This is your call. I follow you. Uh, this is my territory. Um, I I determine this. So that interplay of offering, making offerings and uh, respect and so forth so yeah. clearly in monastic life this is very structured 
you know, you definitely pay respect to your teacher. You may, on occasion, you offer, say, flowers and incense. Um, the teacher must offer you advice, uh, care. Um, if there's a committed relationship, teacher-disciple, then the teacher, it's beholden to them to look after, not just you, also anything they can do for you, your material welfare, like, oh, you need some robes, or looking sick, or go and stay with so-and-so. They, they look after you uh, in that respect. And then, you know, you offer them respect, openness, uh, listening attentively, trying to follow what they're saying, and anything you can do for their welfare. So these are, it's very much this, um, not the classroom model, <laughs> and so originally, you know, the original model for the um, monastic training was uh, called the, the disciple is called the Sadding Viharika. And Sadding is together with Vihara, living together with you. But you actually shared a cell, you shared a, a, a kuti. If you go to Sawati today, you'll see these still remnants of the old stone buildings, the old stone kudis, they're probably built in the time of Ashoka, about 200 years after the Buddha's death. Each one is, way, you know, half the size of this room, probably, and there'll be five cells in it. This is this, there's one with the teacher, he's got his four, <laughs> just living <laughs> actually they're there. <laughs> you know, the, your little thing, you imagine the teacher would get out, okay, you know, you, you, you might sit down and give a little talk about something else, and then they, they go around and sweep up and tidy up and fix his robes and get the bowl ready for him and go out. It was like a little guild, you know. And that, so, you, you know, the, the, the quality of what's happening on a somatic and emotional level, apart from what's being instructed, is just, it's, it's like, you know, like carried around on their chest. <laughs> it's, it's quite, it's close. It's not a lecture. So that, that can be aspect of it. You know, serious discussion, admonishment, this was incorrect, respectful behaviour, and yet held within that sense of kinship. And when there is that sense of trusted kinship and protocol, then serious things can be said, no damage. Uh, rebukes can be had, no damage. Um, person, you know, maybe disrespectful, Sorry about that, no damage, because you've held it within that established relationship. That's uh, a monastic model. Not, I'm, a, I'm afraid, not always adhered to. Either, you know, because you get one teacher, 200 monks. <laughs> it just can't, can't happen. Mm. So, 